Depression and anxiety cases are rising worldwide, especially after the outbreak of COVID-19. The pandemic may be over, but depression keeps rising in many parts of the world, with South Korea's number of patients being treated for depressive disorders surpassing 1 million for the very first time last year. So what is driving people to extreme unhappiness these days? Are more patients being diagnosed? To help us gain deeper insights into the complexities of depression, we're now joined by Dr. Petros Livonos via Zoom. He is the president of the American Psychiatric Association and chair of the Department of Psychiatry at Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I guess a good place to start is by trying to define what exactly depression is. I think we use the expression so loosely in day-to-day conversations like uh, I'm depressed or it's depressing rather loosely while the term depression feels much more serious. So can you first help us define clinical depression and how to differentiate from occasional feelings of sadness or even lethargy? Yeah. Well, depression is a very common and serious medical illness, uh, and it does differ exactly, as you said, from just having the blues. Uh, first of all, you need to have it for two weeks, which is a significant amount of time. And uh, these depressing feelings come quite often with a loss of interest or pleasure in activities that the person once enjoyed, uh, with changes in appetite, either weight loss or weight gain, unrelated to dieting. Uh, trouble sleeping, sleeping too much, not sleeping enough, uh, loss, to, loss of energy, mm. increased fatigue. These are the things that come along with just the depressed mood. Um, occasionally, people even may have thoughts of suicide or thoughts of death. So when all these things come together uh, and they last two weeks, then we call that a major depressive episode. And it is a hallmark of a serious uh, medical condition. So it needs to persist for a significant amount of time when you seek professional help. Uh, go to a doctor, essentially. Absolutely. Okay. Um, I, I know we have to generalize just a little bit, just to better understand for our next question. But it is a global phenomenon. We're seeing more cases of people being diagnosed with uh, different varying levels, but still of depression. Uh, namely, the number of patients being treated for depression in South Korea exceeded 1 million for the first time in 2022. Uh, related medical expenses soared to roughly 400 million U.S. dollars. Uh, Dr. Uh, Levonos, I think it's progress to a certain extent because it implies more people are willing to seek professional help. I think that's a big shift, but it's still an uptick nonetheless. Meanwhile, also in 2022, suicide deaths reached a record high in the United States. Generally speaking, what do you think is behind the uptick of depression cases globally? Uh, Two major things. Uh, One is the pandemic. We cannot really shy away from the facts and undeniable toll on mental health. So uh, it is not uh, just uh, the uh, depression itself, it's all the other uh, financial problems that people had uh, secondary to the depression, uh, physical health problems that people had uh, secondary to the, to the pandemic, um, increased substance use that uh, people experienced because of the pandemic. So all these things did contribute to an increase in uh, uh, depression. Uh, However, what you also mentioned is very, very true, that uh, we have been very pleasantly impressed, especially by young people who now talk uh, about mental health and mental illness much more openly than uh, people of Mm -hmm. my generation. 
So the uptick in the diagnosis of depression may also have to do with this increased awareness and increased uh, acceptance of uh, depression and mental illness in general as um, nothing quite different than asthma or diabetes or cardiovascular illness, hypertension. Uh, if you have a fever, you go to see your family doctor. If you have exactly. a mental illness, you go see a psychiatrist and you start there. And maybe, just maybe, with small steps, we're trying to destigmatize. I, I promise you, maybe 10 years ago when I first arrived in Korea, we weren't having these conversations so openly. And I'm seeing a major shift just in a decade's time. We have TV shows about uh, people seeking psychiatric help, sitting down with psychiatr trained psychiatrists. And so a lot has changed. Yeah, yeah, and even the word stigma, which is just so much part of the conversation of my generation, uh, doesn't have the same meaning for, for young people. Uh, I talk sometimes to my medical students, and uh, I see these blank faces, like, why? Why would there be any difference between <laughs> mental health and other medical conditions? <laughs> sometimes I feel that we're inducing the, the, the stigma by even talking about it with the young generation. Uh, Dr. Lavotis, I think I'm somewhere in the middle, maybe maybe not as young as your medical students, but somewhere in between where I, I, I see both sides and somewhere stuck in between. I like the conversation that we're improving upon. Uh, I also want to touch upon this question, statistically, who is most at risk? So narrowing the scope a little bit from our previous question, uh, are there specific demographic groups or factors that may contribute to a higher risk of developing depression? Yeah. First and foremost, there's a gender difference. Um, the, world, uh, health, the World Health Organization uh, estimates that uh, depression is about 50% more common among women than among men. Uh, and uh, <laughs> the way that we understand that is that we guys uh, do not want to accept that we may be depressed or that we may have any kind of uh, uh, mental illness problem. So we don't step forward to get the care that we need. Uh, this is a, a part of a, a macho culture throughout the, the world, uh, Korea, Greece, United States, you name it. Uh, and so we are in denial uh, quite often when uh, these things uh, happen to us. Well, uh, women are also in denial, but not quite as much as men. So that's a major one. Uh, the other one is young people. We do see an uptick in depression among uh, young people, but um, my understanding is that this is most likely explained by the increased uh, acceptance of uh, mental illness rather than a true increase in depression among uh, our youth. Um, there are other uh, special populations as well. Uh, socioeconomically depressed uh, groups uh, have higher rates of depression, uh, but that goes along with higher rates of cancer, higher rates of uh, cardiovascular illness, and there's a lot of interplay between physical conditions and mental conditions. Uh, Dr. Lavos, you're also a renowned uh, addiction expert, taking out extensive studies on substance abuse disorders, launching an initiative to support uh, patients. Uh, how prevalent is co-occurring mental health disorders like anxiety and depression among individuals struggling with addiction? I would say about one-third to two-thirds of all people with uh, addiction will also have uh, another uh, uh, mental condition like anxiety or depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, an eating disorder, uh, something of that sort. Um, but people sometimes make the mistake, uh, they think that 
all substance use is related to some kind of psychiatric disorder. That is not true. Uh, there are some people who think that if you keep on digging deep, 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 you're going to find some kind of uh, depression or post-traumatic stress disorder or anxiety. Yes, that is true in quite a few people, but not all. There is such thing as uh, addiction that uh, stands alone. Uh, that cannot be explained. Uh, that can't have a more obvious narrative, if you will. It, it can stand alone. Correct. Uh, the vast majority of people who got uh, addicted to prescription opioids um, had absolutely no other uh, conditions. They just uh, they had lower back pain. They went to the doctor. The doctor prescribed massive amounts mm. of uh, painkillers, and they end up getting addicted. Mm. So <laughs> there's that. I think as a society, and maybe the media is uh, guilty of doing this to trying to seek for a generalization. So it's easier for us to understand and explain to others, this is why depression happens. We put it under the big post-pandemic uh, era, which is only the part of the ongoing discussion. So I feel a little bit guilty asking this, but social media is not to blame for everything that's wrong with the world, but it is certainly an area where comparison becomes very easy and I can't imagine that being good in a, in a prolonged period especially when we're feeling vulnerable I certainly don't feel good when I have to wake up at five in the morning and come to work and my friends are in uh, Cancun <laughs> uh, so digitalization is increasing our dependence on it certainly you've strongly voiced that those who are overly preoccupied with technology and online activity must seek psychiatric help. So when do we know if our online addiction is getting a little bit too serious? All right. We're talking about social media. There are a lot of good things about social media, <laughs> no question about it. But for some people, it can be quite detrimental. And now we have some evidence that links uh, excessive use of social media uh, with loneliness. And the Surgeon General of the United States has taken it upon himself to make that into a, a major campaign. So there is a problem there. One of the good news of, of the past uh, few months is that uh, uh, we don't just have uh, the fear of missing out, the FOMO, we now have the, the JOMO as well, the joy of missing out. And people <laughs> talk quite uh, you know, really about uh, being delighted not to have to partake in all these things that happen uh, in, in social media. Um, you asked me, how do you make the, the distinction between normal use and pathological use? And there are three things that, that come to mind. The first one is internal preoccupation, that you constantly think about it. There is nothing else in your life. You live and breathe the particular social platform that, that you're on. Mm. The second one is external consequences when your uh, relationships are going south, when you start uh, seeing that your work uh, is uh, hurting, when your physical health is compromised because of lack of sleep or because of poor eating. Mm. So these external consequences are another major component of pathological use. Mm. But perhaps the most specific one is the following. Continued use despite knowledge of adverse consequences. Let me say that again. Continued use despite knowledge of adverse consequences. Doc, I know it's not good for me anymore, but I cannot help it. I cannot really stop. When that happens, this is trouble. 
And that's where you probably need a little bit of intervention. How how do you intervene? Because I certainly have friends who are glued to their phones and it's it borderline does look unhealthy where it their work quality starts to deteriorate. How do you intervene, doctor? Uh, we do have ways of uh, <laughs> uh, starting the discussion with with our patients, even they even if they feel that there's absolutely nothing wrong uh, in their lives and they're perfectly okay with their uh, social uh, media use. Uh, we try to find the tiniest discrepancy between where they are at and where they would like to be. None of us has the perfect life. For any one of us, there is a little bit of a discrepancy between where we're at, where we would like to be. And that often has to do with relations, uh, with romance, with finances, uh, with success. Uh, so you try to figure out how perhaps one of those little discrepancies may also connect to the excessive use of, let's say, social media or internet gaming for that matter, or cyber sex or a number of the technological addictions. Hmm. How important is early intervention in the treatment of depression as well as addiction? It, it is. The earlier we come in, uh, the, the better the results. But it's never too late. It really isn't. Mm. So if uh, yourself or a loved one seems to be uh, struggling, uh, seek some uh, professional help. Mm. And if your loved one absolutely refuses to come and see me, uh, that's okay. You come see me. <laughs> the family member uh, is okay to come and see me so that I can show you some of the techniques or some of the things that we do to, to help the person with a problem at home. And then perhaps uh, further down the line, they will agree to come and see the psychiatrist. Okay. So if someone is unwilling, then you can go on behalf of your loved one who might be in trouble, who might Absolutely. need just a little bit of help. Okay. Uh, Dr. Lovanos, this is probably a loaded question, but I've got to ask you, what efforts can individuals make and take to reduce the risks and vulnerability of developing depression or addiction? It seems like we live in a very stimulated society. It's all too easy to look for things that are sometimes out of reach, unattainable, Again, going back to social media, but I mean, uh, we know it's not healthy, but how do we ensure that we reduce the risks? We keep it in a manageable level, if you will. Yeah, uh, you're alluding to expectations, uh, <laughs> to somewhat lower uh, expectations. It's so difficult in this world because everything is so big and so fantastic and so colorful that it's very, very difficult to, to, to minimize that. But there are things that you can do to help uh, reduce the chance of, of depression. Uh, and they have to do with uh, physical health. Uh, the classic things that we've been hearing over and over and over again are very true about depression as well. Diet, exercise, and sleep, particularly sleep, particularly pay special attention to uh, anything that you can do to improve your, your sleeping habits. But beyond the physical health, uh, diet, exercise, and sleep, are also uh, relationships. Um, pay attention to your uh, relationships, uh, friendships, uh, family, uh, work uh, uh, colleagues. Uh, they happen to actually make a big difference in terms of reducing the risk of depression. Quality relationships, quality sleep, and the tired old but very true good health and wellness routine. You are what you eat. <laughs> <laughs> and exercise, let's put that in there. In fact, out of all these things I just mentioned, exercise is probably the one that has uh, the most uh, data, the most evidence behind it is being linked to a decreased chance of depression. 
And it's great because you go for a run and you almost feel immediately how much you feel better. So it might be a good short-term plan too. Uh, uh, Dr. Lavos, you said uh, quality sleep is important. How many hours of sleep do you get, if you don't mind me asking? <laughs> I, I, I do get seven hours of sleep every night. I go to bed early. I get up early, but I do go to bed early. So <laughs> I'm not that much fun, I guess. <laughs> Leading by example. Thank you so much for an insightful conversation. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. If you're listening to our program using the podcast service, just a reminder that we do go live Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. Korea Standard Time. So tune in and help us make the show more informative by giving us your input. See you bright and early on Good Morning Seoul.